Hello, I'm Ray Wright, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Joyce McKenzie Liu, founder of Pegafun, an early-stage B2B SaaS finance thought leader across Europe. Today, we will be covering three main areas, the B2B SaaS market maturity across Europe, financing options and financial trends for European B2B SaaS founders to understand, and the metrics that matter for early-stage European B2B SaaS companies. Are they same as in the U.S.? Joyce, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Ray, for that introduction. I'm super honored and also humbled that you invited me as your first guest to talk about all things Europe and SaaS related. A little bit of background on myself. I'm actually Canadian, in case you're wondering where the accent is from. But I started my uh, journey in finance, in particular in software, over a decade ago. In 2009, first working at JP Morgan on the banking side, and then started focusing in particular on software investments when I moved over to Aries in 2012 to look at late growth and also publicly traded companies and how to take those businesses private. I first became curious actually about Europe overall and what was happening over here in terms of the tech ecosystem in 2013. So it's quite early days in the second wave of entrepreneurship that has really grown and expanded a lot over the last six, seven years. And that was largely off the back of Zendesk, which we all know is a great customer support and success company today listed on the New York Stock Exchange. They had just filed their S1 in early 2014. Zalando at the time, as well as Rocket Internet, were looking to go public on the Deutsche Borsa also in October of 2014. And so all of these little, let's say, drops in the ocean is what got me curious about what was happening over here. And so I decided to take a leap of faith after having conversations with over 60 different people, both founders and investors in the ecosystem over here to figure out what was going on and to be part of the ecosystem, because I had a feeling that things were just going to blow up in a really big way. And that has definitely been the case. If we look at UiPath, which is just most recently filed to go public this past week, that's actually a, a European company, a company that was born in, in Romania. And so I think Europe right now is really the hot topic in both the venture and also overall tech community. But one of the things that I feel is really lacking, having worked in this environment for the past six, seven years, is just a really solid understanding of finance and specifically how finance relates to SaaS and SaaS scale-ups and, and growth companies. And that's the reason why I started Pegafund earlier this year is to really help share that knowledge that I've learned over the years around software investing and particularly companies at the early stage and hope to level up the leadership both at the founder level and at the C-suite level when it comes to what are the best practices around scaling a high growth SaaS company. 
Great. Thank you for that introduction. And I want to dig into more. I was watching your latest SaaS talk on the Blueprint sessions, and you talked about why finance is an essential function for you know, early stage scaling SaaS companies. But let's zoom out for just a minute and talk a little bit about the European market for our listening audience, which today is primarily US and Canada based. And I'm looking very forward to expanding into Europe now. But Crunchbase yeah. says there's around 15,000 to 18,000 SaaS companies in the world, which I find it very hard to believe since there's 13,000 MarTech and SalesTech vendors just in those two segments. I've seen estimates more in the 30,000 to 40,000 range around the world. But what's the current state of maturity of the European SaaS marketplace? And what are the primary differences between the European SaaS ecosystem and the US SaaS ecosystem from your perspective? Yeah, great question, Ray. So the first thing I would start off with is looking at overall where there's a lot of financial capital being invested, whether that's equity or debt or just government support. And that's definitely very much still focused on the early stage part of the ecosystem. And early stage, I would define as companies both pre-product market fit, also at product market fit, and the early scaling stage. So it's very much pre-seed, seed, series A, there's a lot of funding going into these companies at this moment in time, in large part due to the very generous government funding programs that are available both in the UK and across Europe. And also due to the reinvestment of, let's call it serial entrepreneurs and savvy institutional investors who are really focused on transforming overall the economy in Europe into a very digital forward manner. And so most of the companies I would say there's still a very large volume at that stage where they're really looking to scale from, call it a few hundred K in AR, upwards of 5 million, and maybe a little bit beyond in AR. That's where a lot of the investment capital is going into. It's also where if you look at valuations of these companies, they're very much, I would argue, in line with actually US valuations, maybe not quite as extreme as the ones that you see in the Valley, but definitely on par to what you would see across the US. So from a funding perspective, if I think back to where the ecosystem was six years ago when I first moved over here, there's definitely not a shortage of capital anymore. And this has also been recognized and experienced by some of the leading US investors. So for instance, Sequoia hired for the first time in their history a general partner from Excel who's now based in London and has built a team around her. Lightspeed also recruited a local European manager about, I think, a year and a half or two years ago to really actively look at seed and Series A investments. Benchmark has always been doing deals over here, also due to the relationship with Balderton, which was formerly Benchmark. You know, Greylock, which used to be one collective team, both Europe and Israel, now with Laurel there in London, and they've rebranded a few years back as 83 North. There's just not a shortage of capital for early stage European venture companies. But in terms of the maturity from the other aspect of an ecosystem, which is really talent, I think there's still definitely a talent gap when it comes to the commercial and GNA parts of the organization. So particularly that's marketing, that's sales, that's finance and operations. I would say the technical talent, particularly on the engineering and arguably also on the product front, is quite strong. And that's largely driven by the fact that the universities in Europe are very strong in these areas. And they invest heavily into developing their talent and also the educational programs around that talent to support that. But when it comes to the commercial parts of the business, I think 
a lot of this is still quite in its early infancy if I look at the relative comparison to the U.S. market. And a huge part of why this is the case also has to do with overall the experience that people get in the corporate world. So if you look at the history of how technology has evolved in Europe, in large part, if you look at two or three decades ago, a lot of the technology was built in-house by large organizations. And they kind of figured it out as they go. They would hire really smart developers and engineers to build out solutions that they needed. But it wasn't really a market that was open to buying out-of-the-box software solution until the late 90s. And so there just isn't as much history around go-to-market, particularly commercial go-to-market leaders who have done that transition from telecom to on-premise and to modern-day SaaS. And that's also why I started Pegafun in the first place, is to really support the expertise around SaaS scaling when it comes to the other parts of the business that's non-technical. That's a great background, Joyce. Let's double-click into a couple of the things you shared during that introduction. One is the governmental financing options. Now, is that primarily in the form of tax credits or actual capital infusion? And is that capital infusion from an equity perspective or from a loan perspective? It's all of that, right? So it's governments that are funding the fund managers, so specifically the VCs and growth equity funds. It's governments that are giving tax credits to wealthy individuals in the form of early stage investing. So when you're investing at the idea stage or a pre-seed stage, it's governments providing direct investments in the form of equity and debt to fund the innovation and technology that's going into these businesses, so particularly the R&D development side of the company. So it's all of that. And Joyce, are there particular countries and their governments that seem to be a little bit more proactive and aggressive in this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I would say in general, all the governments, particularly in the main markets, and when I say main markets, I mean the large markets really, namely UK, France, Germany, Netherlands, to a certain extent as well, Denmark and Finland and the Baltics to a smaller extent, have very supportive governments, not only in terms of funding, but also the initiatives that really propel an ecosystem forward, right? So things like making it super easy to set up a company, not only for entrepreneurs who are native to that country, but also for foreign entrepreneurs, giving entrepreneurs tax credits and financial incentives to set up. Right now, there's a big initiative happening across the EU, which is called the Not Optional Initiative, which is very much around standardizing the employee stock option framework, which I'm a big fan and proponent of because everything is so local in Europe. Like I think as someone who's lived in North America still most of my life, before moving over to Europe, I kind of thought about it as one big country almost, (laughs) ignorantly so. But in fact, Europe is broken down into very many distinct regions. And then within those regions, specific countries who all have their own distinct business culture and legal framework and system of operating. So even a country like Germany, for instance, there's 16 separate different states and there's different nuances in operating all this in the different states. So that fragmentation is both the beauty of the European market, but it's also a double-edged sword when it comes to startups and scale-ups that want to scale and grow very quickly across our market with very distinct 
cultures because it requires localization and really understanding the nuances of each of those markets. Well, let's dive into that one, Joyce, because I think so many people from the U.S., they see the European Union, the Euro, and they're like, oh, boy, Europe is a huge market. But as you said, Europe is a several individual markets. So for early stage SaaS companies, it seems like their go-to-market strategy needs to change for every region of Europe they go in. Is that correct? And how are you seeing companies deal with the need for multiple go-to-market strategies and maybe even organizational competencies simultaneously? Yeah, great question, Ray. Um, so I'll answer that by saying, how do VCs look at coverage and also how do startups build up their go-to-market teams? Broadly speaking, you can segment Europe into UK, Ireland, Scandinavia, the Nordics, and then Baltics, a little bit in extension of that, but again, very distinct culture and nuances of operating in that culture. Germany and Dach, so all the kind of German-speaking regions, including Austria and to a certain extent, Switzerland, France, and then Benelux. But Benelux is an interesting well because, as you know, Belgium is the southern part is more French-speaking and the northern part is more Dutch-speaking as well. And then you'd look at Spain and Portugal. So these are generally how I would segment the different regions. And as a result, when you look at how venture funds set up their teams to do geographic coverage in Europe, the teams are also structured accordingly. Similarly, within a startup or scale-up, when they think about hiring commercial talent, both marketing and sales, they think about a setup within this context as well. And the reason for that is like, for instance, if you take a market like Germany, you have to localize the marketing collateral and your website and everything that filters down for it to German speaking natives. You need to have an established network when you try to build a channel partner strategy in Germany, because that's how business is done. Similarly, in France, you know, there's a whole school of thought around which parts of France are tech companies and also corporates based in. And so you need to have people who are not only French native speakers, but have an established network and have been working in that environment for some period of time. And that's really important when you think about scaling and go to market because it does introduce a new level of complexity that, for instance, an American company might not necessarily have because let's face it, the person in Chicago is like probably nicer than the person you have in New York, but they speak the same language. You know, it's not a different language. But what I would say is the flip side of this fragmentation, the beauty of it is it does introduce let's say, more out-of-the-box thinking or creativity when it comes to go-to-market. And for this reason, when I look at European companies that scale to the U.S., especially the ones that have achieved go-to-market fit in Europe, not just in their domestic region, but across other markets outside of their domestic region, and they're typically call it 3 to $8 million in AR, there's a much higher probability and likelihood of success in the U.S., because of the fact that you've had to adapt to other cultures around you and you've had to have some creativity and out-of-the-box thinking in doing that expansion. Well, let's look at a near-adjacent topic to that because that's eight different markets that you talked about in Europe. So you have to plan and have a go-to-market strategy and measurements of success for each one of those eight markets that you're going to enter into. 
So one of the things I wanted to ask you is about metrics and what, from your perspective, are the most critical KPIs that you recommend to your customers and portfolio companies? And let me give you a foundation. So as we're building the RevOps Squared SaaS KPI Benchmarking Index, the first mm-hmm. five KPIs, we always recommend even early stage SaaS companies to make sure that the instrument that they capture and they start to evaluate to make those metrics informed decisions include in the customer acquisition efficiency world, the CAC payback and the CAC ratio, customer retention, customer expansion area. It's definitely gross dollar retention and net dollar retention. In the kind of cash generation efficiency, we look at gross margin and we really want to make sure they look at gross margin for both the software subscriptions and services and the rule of 40. And that's really your overall company growth rate. And then what type of profitability you're generating from a gross profit, EBITDA, and free cash flow perspective. So those are the five kind of categories we recommend people to be prepared for. Are they same mm-hmm. in Europe or are there additional ones you recommend? Yeah, I think it's very similar. You know, SaaS companies today are firstly digital and everyone is working remotely and for the most part also selling remotely. So the metrics are also just a reflection of that motion and those business models. I think depending on the stage of business you're in, which metrics are more important relative to the others will vary. So what I mean by that specifically is, so the companies we target are really the ones between two to $10 million in AR. And I would classify then further breaking that down into two smaller buckets, which are the ones between two to 5 million or two to 6 million in AR and the ones between five to 10 million of AR. So in the two to 5 billion AR bucket, they're at that like early scale up stage. So what is super important in addition to looking at AR and the breakdown of that AR is really understanding ACV, TCV, gross margin. And the reason for that is because you want to have at that stage seen more or less like a stability or a steady state of what those metrics look like to demonstrate that you have good go-to-market fit or early signs of go-to-market fit. For the companies that are at later stage, like the 5 to 10 million AR, those metrics are so important, but there's more of an emphasis on CAC and CAC payback and looking at churn and the breakdown of that churn. And in particular, then extension by that, the gross and net retention on a dollar and logo basis, because at that point, you're starting to really focus on generating or let's say maximizing your lifetime value as you enter into the phase where you want to upsell and expand on existing logo, ACV and TCV already. So it's really about the maturity and the complexity of each company. And of course, this will also vary depending on if you're, you know, as we talked about in our earlier conversation, whether it's selling into the business side or whether you're selling into the technology infrastructure side of a company. But I would say in general, in the early days, even pre-10 million ERR, you're very much focused on new logo acquisition. And as you transition into expansion and upsell, then there's a higher emphasis on the metrics around sales and marketing efficiency, which contribute to that. The other thing here in the U.S., one of the things we're recommending to our clients, and we typically say you need to really start considering this seriously at that five to 10 million is customer mm-hmm. lifetime value to CAC ratio. Since that yeah. factors in not only gross margin, but also your churn rate, it's really a little too early sub 5 million to consider CLTV to CAC as a real predictive metric. Do you agree with that, Joyce? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the companies at the two to five million AR mark and even earlier, I just don't really look at lifetime value because lifetime value at that point is a finger in the air. It's anyone's best guess, right? There isn't any stability around churn yet, probably because as a business, you haven't even existed long enough for there to be a steady state of churn. But definitely as you get towards closer to the five to 10 and 10 beyond, where a lot of companies start experiencing this leaky bucket problem, that becomes quite an important metric to look at when you look at all the metrics in tandem, but weighting towards more one or two of the metrics. The other metric that I like to look at from if you're thinking about just capital efficiency overall, more for companies that are 100 people plus in size is really the AR per full-time employee. And there, I think it's important to when you think about like series B or C companies and beyond to understand like how efficient is this business actually running? And a really easy back of the envelope, quick and dirty way to look at that is to assume that per full-time employee, each person is generating around 100K to 150K in ARR. And that generally, if you look at both public companies and also growth stage companies, that's a pretty good way of determining whether a business is operating efficiently or not from a commercial perspective. Yeah. One of the things we do at RevOps Squared is benchmarking, of course, and we find that the best in class or that's 75th percentile and above, we're seeing more on that 180,000 ARR per employee. Is that similar in Europe? Do you get to that level for the best in class? Yeah, that's fantastic. And there are definitely companies out there that have that. Actually, funny enough, a few months ago, we interviewed one of the growth leaders at Falcon, and they have that metric. I think it's like 183 or 185K per AR. And that's just like amazing because it tells you the machine and the engine is really running efficiently and they really have go-to-market fit. And I think that's probably also why they successfully ultimately exited Decision and then were bought by a consortium of private equity investors more recently. It's interesting. We see the same thing around net dollar retention and the whole product-led growth phenomena is impacting what is or is not good net dollar retention or NDR. But in the private SaaS companies here in the U.S., in first half of 2020, we found net dollar retention was around 100 to 103% on average. But if you look at some of the public companies who are product-led, you know, the Twilio's of the world, we're seeing 130, 140% NDR. Do you see that same trend with product-led growth in Europe? Yeah. And I would actually also argue the ones that have been product-led growth or let's say bottoms up user acquisition strategy, but have then also supplemented that with an enterprise growth strategy are above 130% in net retention. So two examples, and I hope it's okay that I share a public secret, because if you ask anyone in the venture community, they'll know these metrics. But Showpad, which was a Dawn portfolio company that I work closely with, both at Dawn and also at Columbia Lake Partners, their net retention was always in the 130, 140, sometimes even 150% mark. And that's great because it shows you that they really understood their land and expand strategy, both from a product and commercial perspective. The other example of that is Detaiku, which is a company based in France and also in the US. And their net retention is like, I think 145, I want to say, last time I looked at it. And similarly, that's initially kind of user-led growth supplemented with enterprise. And these companies also command higher multiples when it comes to their fundraising rounds as a result. 
Yeah. And we always talk to early stage founders about looking at net dollar retention, almost like compounded interest. Because if you're in 145% <laughs> net dollar retention, that means theoretically you could rip out almost all your operating expenses and still grow 45% a year with no new customer acquisition. It's just an incredible financial concept. I mean, it totally is, Ray, right? If you look at how the Bessemer Cloud Index has been trading since the beginning of the year, it's just phenomenal because I think a year today, it's gone up 45% right, over the last six months, actually. I was going to say over the last six months because what's interesting, yeah. Byron Dieter, who's the kind of, I call him the founding father of SaaS Metrics, and he's at yeah. Bessemer Ventures. I had him on the yeah. podcast a couple months ago, and we were talking about the Bessemer Index. And by the way, for those people who like to invest in public markets, Wisdom Tree actually launched about a year and a half ago an ETF that mirrors the Bessemer Index. And in yes. the last three months, just the last three months, it's up 32%. And yeah. the ticker is W Cloud. So I recommend anyone who likes public markets to take a look at that one. I am a buyer of that index because I also believe in passive as well as active investing. And I bought into it on Robinhood. I think it was both last year and a little bit in the dip earlier this year. But yes, a big fan of that index because you look at the multiples, like the EV to revenue multiple is almost 22x, right? And generally speaking, private companies trade at a premium to public companies, not in today's market per se necessarily, but in the past, because there's just so much supply of capital in the private markets and you can really drive up an auction process if you fundraise correctly. But 22X, like that's astounding. I think I read somewhere the other day, Ray, that like Snowflakes is valued at 240X. I still yeah. need to, to now, dig now into that one more. <laughs> a little bit about the frothiness of the market. But one other thing for our listeners on net dollar retention before we pivot away from that. Interesting. I was speaking to Sopra Equity Group and they do many, many private transactions, both strategic buyers and private equity buyers. And they have something called the net retention wave. And what it showed was two companies, they both had 40% growth rate. They were the okay. same size. But one had 110% net dollar retention and the other company only had 100% net dollar retention. On average, that revenue to enterprise value multiple went from 6x to 9 to 10x just for a 10% difference in NDR. That's how important it is. Yeah, I mean, everyone is focused on growth right now, right? Because the market is chasing yield because there's so much printing of money in the market right now. And so everyone's going after the stable high growth companies that can generate a lot of cash. That's ultimately, if you look at any public or private company, that's the whole beauty of the SaaS model is you're really getting your customers to fund your product and your team development in addition to external funding, of course, at the early stage. And as well, I think if you look at overall lifetime value of software compared to 10 years ago to today, you know, the lifetime value is shorter. It's like the iPhone batteries <laughs> to a certain extent. And so that growth, even that little bit incremental growth is so much more valuable from an investor perspective, but also from a business and employee perspective. And I can totally understand why those companies would be valued at a premium as a result. Well, let's talk about two other kind of financial metrics. One is the concept of marginal efficiency, and it really piggybacks on expanding into new markets, whether it's in Europe or the United States. And that is you may have your CAC ratio that you know really well for the Benelux marketplace or Scandinavia. And then you enter into UK, Ireland or into the US, 
And you need to really understand what your customer acquisition efficiency there is versus looking at the company level and say, wow, our CAC ratio went from $1.50 to $1.90. What's wrong? So what advice do you give to your customers and portfolio companies on the use of both marginal efficiency and cohort-based analysis? Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, to your point, it's really important to segment the different lines of business, both in terms of products and revenue streams that come out of that and also geographic, because it speaks to the maturity of the business in those particular aspects. And so as a result, just to provide an example, one of the companies I used to work with, when they expanded into the US, originally, they were reporting like, company-wide CAC. And it gave, in some ways, not a great picture, but rather an illusion of how the business was performing overall. And over time, what we did was we transitioned that down into what was Europe, UK versus the US. And looking at that made it a lot easier also when you're thinking about how that filters down to the rest of the organization in terms of on a per-function basis, also in terms of compensation for commercial people. And that ultimately showed us that Europe and UK was a very attractive market that continues to be the bread and butter for that company, but that US hadn't quite achieved go-to-market fit. And that thing, it just required a different approach. So that's ultimately like why these metrics are super important to get right, not only in terms of the quality of how the data is being ingested, but also how you interpret and derive insights from that data, because it allows a business to make key strategic decisions and be quite agile in making those decisions, which is really necessary for a high growth scale up. You know, we've talked a lot about metrics the last 10 to 15 minutes. And one of the common themes we see for earlier stage companies, quite frankly, later stage companies too, is not having the appropriate infrastructure and data foundation to capture the source inputs to these calculations and then calculate them efficiently. In fact, I see multiple calculations, even for something as simple as CAC payback period. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they include gross margin, sometimes they don't. Let's talk about that earliest stage. You talked about the 2 million to 5 million. What's your advice to the founders to the importance of having that financial infrastructure and metrics capturing infrastructure in place earlier rather than later? Yeah, that's a great question, right? I've had so many discussions similar to that this week with both founders and also with investors, not only in the context of SaaS stock blueprint, but also just the work that we're doing at Pega Fund. And I think one of the things that's really key, firstly, particularly as it relates to European ecosystem, is to understand the role of finance and operations at the leadership level and how that looks across different maturities of a company. So what does that look at the seed stage, the series A stage, the series B stage? How does that map to AR? I'm of the opinion that companies should start measuring what matters before they raise the series A round. So they should start doing that pre $1 million in AR. Especially if you're a product-led growth company, think about having to clean through thousands of customer logo data to get to the right quality of SaaS metrics. It's total pain and it takes a lot of time. And that time comes at the cost of growth. So what I advise to companies that are earlier than the ones that we typically work for is they really should first get their data quality and data integrity in place by making sure that they're using the right tooling. So as an example, if you are a product-led growth company, you should look at our CRM solution like HubSpot, 
if you're moving into the enterprise, then you better just install Salesforce pretty early days because most enterprise sales reps are operating on Salesforce and they're trained on that. And then making sure that there's really great integration between all the tooling and the infrastructure that captures your data. So thinking about when does the CRM then hand off to perhaps like a customer success tool like Gainsight that you might be utilizing as you grow and scale? How does that then map to your billing and invoice system? How does that then connect to your forecasting solution? All of that. And then your payments as well. Like all of that needs to be synchronized so that you have a single source of truth when it comes to data. And once you have good data quality and integrity, then it's about communicating that to everyone who needs to make decisions within the business. So that's both on a team leadership level and the people that roll up into that team. It's on a VP and C level. And it's also to your investors and to your board. By doing that, it allows a business to actually scale very quickly and achieve go-to-market fit on a global scale. Yeah. And beyond having the right data to make those metrics informed decisions, as we've talked to several, both venture capital firms and private equity firms, they say the company that we go into, whether it's a series A company looking for a series B investment or a series B looking for more growth stage or even private equity, because quite frankly, five to 10 million is to new 20 million from private equity firms. They're going down market and investing much earlier. They're saying Mm -hmm. the quality of those metrics if that potential investment has great quality, understand how to calculate the metrics and show that they're actually using those to make smarter capital deployment decisions, they'll get a significant increase in valuation versus those companies that don't. And I was really surprised at that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's a great point. So when I look at the context of our business and Pega Fund, if there's a company that's 10 million AR or close to 10 million AR, and they don't have someone who's strong in finance and or operations, and also the founders themselves don't have that background. It's not a company that we engage with beyond an initial conversation to kind of do a consulting scoping exercise because the amount of organizational debt when it comes to data quality and also how that's captured in tools and systems, and also how that's ingrained in the culture of the people within the business is just too much burden for us to take on. And they need to have someone who is full-time and experienced and can do these quick turnarounds. So that's definitely a reflection of the quality of the business when it comes to investors who are looking to invest at that stage. You know, SaaS was built upon this concept of an agile development framework, right? So we can do quick iterations. So in fact, a company like Twilio actually does, believe it or not, hundreds of code pushes a day right now. That's how quick they iterate. But you had a blog and I was really intrigued by that. And that is around using the agile methodology and the concept of sprints for finance. Can you just at a high level share a little bit about how sprints play in financial infrastructure and financial changes? Yeah, absolutely right. And so I think you're referring to an article that we published on Forbes, like back in October, I want to say. And yeah, exactly what you said, which is agility as a concept can really be applied to finance, but actually more broadly to all different parts of a business. That's ultimately the benefit of the modern SaaS deployment method. And one of the things that's super important for venture-backed high-growth companies is the ability to have many experiments but also quickly reduce the experiments that aren't working based on the metrics 
that are shown through those experiments. That's the only way that you can grow really quickly. And unless you take on an agile way of deploying those experiments and also measuring those experiments and communicating the value of those experiments, it's just not possible to really grow quickly beyond five or 10 million ER. That's when a lot of companies slow down in growth. So specifically on how we apply agility to finance and this concept of financial sprints, what it really is, is a strategy and leadership exercise to help a company think and understand key SaaS metrics, but more importantly, think about how this applies overall to go-to-market strategy. So what we do is we use concepts like Crazy 8. We also use concepts like looking at growth accelerators and blockers through a solution sketch to figure out what are the things that as a team collectively we can block and tackle really quickly to get the quick wins, which will optimize how a business scales, but in the medium long term also enables a business to grow in a way that's predictable which is really important for any scale up. Because if you grow predictably, that means not only do you have growth from a top line perspective, but you're not also disproportionately burning too much cash to achieve that growth. And through the exercise, what we do at the end of the week is we create a very detailed action plan that looks at what is the project per function, what is the task per project, what is the timeline for each task, who is a task force and team that will deliver on that project to help shift the business towards that next key business milestone, which tends to be a funding event or in some cases an exit event. But if you don't incorporate financial strategy and operations into your go-to-market strategy, like you're really missing a whole piece that enables a business to grow predictably going forward. I will tell you, I think anyone who thinks about financial operations needs to read the article. And I think they can find it once again under Joyce McKenzie Liu in Forbes.com, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, let's wrap up with one last thing, and I'm going to make it bi-directional. Any okay. advice you have for earlier stage European B2B SaaS companies that are thinking about moving into the U.S. marketplace, which has got that label as very large target addressable market. What advice do you give to those European SaaS companies looking to expand into the U.S.? The short answer is be prepared, do your research well, and understand your competitive landscape well. Understand your ideal customer profile, what are the buyer personas, what are the use cases. It's super, super important when you go to the U.S. market because it's a much more competitive market. I would argue in some ways it's less forgiving, especially if you are not an American company. And also given the longer history of buying out-of-the-box software solutions, there's a higher level of service requirement when it comes to delivery and support and post-sale success. So that's super, super important because so often I hear startups and scale-ups say, oh, we don't have any competition, right? And it's like, how do you not have any competition? You're, you always have competition. You might not be competing on a product level, but you're always competing for budget, especially when you're going after corporate mid-market and enterprise customers. So you need to really understand if they're buying your solution, what are they not buying? And if they are buying your solution, why are they buying it instead of the other solutions that they're considering, right? And where are they getting budget from? Is it the business unit level? Is it at a higher level? Is it discretionary budget? Is it, you know, budget that's been set aside? That's super, super, super important. Understanding the competitive landscape. 
The second advice I would have is it's quite valuable to actually build up your demand generation before you officially launch into the U.S. market. So what I've seen like a handful of companies do really well at is to set up two shifts of BDRs, one in the daytime and one in the evening time, where they're doing one or two, maybe even three quarters of building up the demand before they officially hire expensive account executives to go after and really close those deals in the U.S. That's really valuable because it allows then account executives and the commercial organization to be productive much quicker. The third recommendation I have is really around making sure that you take into account the distinct cultures of different European markets and also the U.S. market. That's one of the biggest common challenges that a lot of companies have when they go to the U.S., is they just haven't committed enough resources and time from a cultural perspective to make sure that both the, let's say, the home company in Europe is adapted to the business culture and nuances of operating into the U.S. market. So there's definitely a very strong correlation with European companies that move to the U.S., especially those that have the founders or one of the founders move to the U.S. and take their A-team, so their best salesperson, their best maybe sales engineer, one of their marketing people to set up an initial pod in the physical location where you're setting up a U.S. team, and then to also then supplement that with experienced SaaS scalers in the U.S. market. And investing that time, whether it's six months or 12 months or 18 months, is super critical to getting product market and go-to-market fit in the U.S. And the ones that don't invest the time, you just see them go through like two or three or four iterations of the U.S. go-to-market team before they can get that. And that's really expensive, both from a time perspective, but also from a cost and investment perspective as well. That's great advice. And I'm going to add a couple things to that. And I can't take credit for it because the benefit of having the Metrics of Major podcast, I talk to a lot of people who are a lot smarter and more experienced than me. And here's a couple additional bits of advice. Byron Dieter from Bessemer, I've referred to before, said, be a scholar of the industry. And what that means is if you're entering a new market like the U.S., understand what are the benchmarks? What are the expectations? What do the customers in that market expect? And one of the ways to do that is talk to other entrepreneurs who have entered into the U.S. market before. Maybe they had success or maybe they had failures, but that advice and insight they can give is going to be invaluable. And the second thing I was told was when you're looking at increasing distribution here, whether that's demand gen, BDR, or your first enterprise hire, try to find candidates who have helped European companies acquire customers in the U.S. marketplace before because they have an understanding of the mindset of the home country and also an understanding of how that plays and resonates in the U.S. market. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with both and definitely the second one because it also helps a lot with, call it cultural translation given that they've gone through that experience before. And I've seen that time and again with so many companies, whether it's coming out of the Nordics or Germany or France or UK, it's a language cultural barrier at the end of the day. And what someone else is saying is different to how you interpret it. So the more that someone has had that international experience on both markets, that's super helpful to getting into a productive team. And the one other thing I would just add to that, Ray, if I may, is I think having brand recognition in the US is really important. 
And so the more you can call it stand on the shoulders of giants, as they like to say, whether it's having Fortune 500 logos on your websites or also getting recognition through Gartner, Forrester, or IDC, or one of these research analysts in a report, I think that goes a long way in also establishing credibility as a European company expanding into the U.S. Yeah, I call it credibility through association. Totally agree. Well, (laughs) unfortunately, I could talk to you for another hour, but we need to wrap up this edition of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. So I'd like to end it with any last advice you'd like to provide to early stage European entrepreneurs who are going to be listening to our podcast. The one thing I would just add is I think it's really valuable for founders to talk to each other, not just successful founders who have had an exit, but also founders who may have not had as much success or, you know, have had that, you know, multi-million dollar exit. Because still today, what I see common in Europe is investors compare notes and they're super collaborative and open with those notes. But founders don't really talk to other founders outside of their city or country even. And that's where a lot of the knowledge sharing really comes in. Right? The reason why you know people still think of Silicon Valley as the darling of the tech world in many ways is because there's just this super open, radical, candid culture. And I think that's something that would really benefit not just the European ecosystem, but all ecosystems is this sharing of and just being super transparent around like common mistakes that were made, both on the hiring front, on go to market, on all things, right? This risk aversion or this negativity associated with failure is still something that needs to be culturally overcome, I feel, here in Europe. And actually, the way I look at it is there's no such thing as a mistake. There's only such thing as a really valuable life lesson. Totally agree. That's great advice. And I'm going to end this episode of the Metrics Major Up podcast with that. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpSquared.com. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpSquared.com.